A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. In order to grow, we need to change. And that starts with acknowledging that we have a problem. It means abandoning the stale economic consensus. It means politicians doing the right thing, even if it's unpopular. This is the Debunking Economics Podcast with Steve Keen and Phil Dobby. Well, that was Liz Trust there giving her revival speech at the Institute for Government in the UK, talking growth and how to achieve it. Uh, we will decipher what she said. And in the interests of balance, because everyone seems to give Liz a hard time, let's see if there were some things in her speech that we can actually agree with. PM for a few weeks but sticking around like a bad smell. Okay, that wasn't very balanced. Uh, It is Liz Truss examined this week on the Debanking Economics podcast. Me and Steve Keen, thanks for tuning in. So Liz Truss is back. But maybe not for long. I mean, she wasn't around for very long the first time, you might remember. 49 days as Prime Minister... And a couple of weeks of that, she had to keep a low profile because of the Queen's death. You remember, we were all in mourning. We were mourning because of the Queen, uh, but also because Liz Truss was Prime Minister. Uh, The Queen, you remember, uh, got out of bed to greet her, and then she died shortly afterwards, not passing any comment, obviously, on that. I wonder how Charles is doing at the moment, because Liz Truss is back. She gave a speech last week trying to push her supply-side reform only through less regulation and lower taxes can Britain see growth, and that growth will create prosperity from which we will all benefit, ladies and gentlemen, rich and poor, old and young. Yes, trickle down is back, baby. Embrace it. Uh, But we have been ground down by stale economic consensus, she says, and she's going to change that. If only she can regain power, which obviously seems a bit unlikely. Uh, We'll look at what she had to say. I mean, are there some good bits, even in the overall picture, which is perhaps a little deluded? Steve, can we find some good in all of this? I mean, she talks about the economic consensus that is not working. She says 25 years of economic consensus. What do you think she means by economic consensus? Because the majority of those 25 years obviously have been a Tory government and uh, and she is a Tory politician. So there we are, deluded fact number one. See, I know that that just, just blew me away. I mean, it, it's incredible how people make up their own histories and we all do it to various extents. It's a question, to what extent do we check that against against historical data? And like, I, I date the beginning of neoliberalism back to 1975 because uh, you take a look then that was the we've had the inflationary period beforehand. Milton Friedman was suddenly ascendant. The central banks all around the world thought they could control inflation by controlling the rate of growth of the money supply, with no awareness, of course, at the time that there are two sources of money creation, the private banks and the government, not just one. They thought controlling government money creation would cut inflation, and by having low inflation, uh, we would have... Uh, uh, you know, a successful growing economy. And we would also s- simultaneously reduce the scale of government because the whole idea was the government got too big. And they were focusing on the level of government debt, uh, not uh, not focusing on the fact that it's, uh, the, it's the ratio of government debt to GDP that matters, trying to cut back government spending. That's been going on for nigh on, you know, 50 bloody years. Yeah. And... Um, 
and and like the only well, thing which because yeah okay she, you did dive in yeah well I mean yeah because she's declaring that it's not working uh, and it, it, actually <laughs> yeah, what, she, what right. she's advocating is the, we agree she's right it's not working yeah well she I mean is Britain broken so they I think it was time to coincide with her speech Lord Ashcroft uh, has this polling company uh, showing that seventy two percent of people in Britain agree that Britain is broken people are getting poorer nothing seems to work. Uh, and we need big changes in the way that the country works. Whichever party is in power, we need that to change. Only 22% said Britain is not broken, but those that say it's not broken, not broken, is higher amongst Tory voters, so 38% of Tory voters say, no, everything's fine. Over 65s, 36% say, no, it's not broken. Leave voters, 29%, uh, and those who intend to vote at the next election for the Tories. So here's the big divide. This shows uh, how political lines are being separated now. 54% of those people who intend to vote for Tory at the next election are saying, yeah, Britain is not broken. So old, bolted on Tories are less convinced that things are going wrong. But 72% of the broad population think things are not on a good track. And that that's actually a nice contrast to Truss's speech. I mean, you know, saying that the left wing has won. I mean, if the left wing had won, it'd be the Labor Party who were making those sorts of comments, or what there's to the extent that you can regard the British Labor Party as left wing. Of mm. course, I know that's a bit a bit weird, um, <laughs> but yeah, it, it's the right wing voters who think things are going well, and the reason is. Fundamentally, it's going better for them than most other people for the, the impact that right-wing policies, or let's say neoliberal, not necessarily right-wing, neoliberal policies have had on the distribution of income. Yeah, if you're at the top of the scale, you're going to be doing uh, pretty well. And fundamentally, all the agenda has been about small government, um, uh, you know, getting the, the government out of the out of the private sector's way, yada, yada, yada. The rhetoric and the objective has been exactly what Liz Truss wants to continue so the fact she sees herself as being a revolutionary is in terms of changing the direction of policy and, and the dominance of who dominates policy setting. I mean, you know, I was wondering if Groucho Marx was in the audience <laughs> giving a cues. Well, you know, I think she thinks that maybe... Not Karl, not Karl, no, not no, Karl no, Marx. D- definitely Marx. not Karl Marx, yeah. no. I think, I think yeah. she thinks Friedman has not been applied sufficiently. You know, it's one of those things, if it's not working well, then it's not being done properly. I think that's her thinking. But listen, let's, let's have a listen to her. The fact is that since Labour was elected in 1997, we have moved towards being a more corporatist social democracy than we were in the, seven, in the 80s and the 90s. State spending now accounts for 46% of GDP, higher than it was in every year in Britain, except for 1975, and up from 34.8% in the year 2000. No other European country has seen this level of growth in state spending apart from Greece and Spain. Well, can we agree with that then, Steve, number one? So our state spending as a proportion of GDP is is going up. What's going on there? What's what's actually going on? If you've got people trying to apply a set of concepts about a system, which is wrong, to the real system, and that tends to have perverse effects. Uh, So if you you, you know... it's like if astronomers are trying to shoot to the moon when they or to Mars when they believed in epicycles, they're unlikely to land on the planet. Uh, and then this is what's going on here. You've got a totally false view of how the economy operates. You implement policies based on that false view, and that will have perverse effects on how the system actually functions, which will come back to you and say, oh, we didn't do it well enough the last time around. What? And that the, the classic, and this this... 
this is the one I just want to uh, start off with. I'll have others later on. Is the idea that the the government is borrowing from the private sector when it spends more than it gets back in taxation? When you do the accounting, and it is simply accounting, left, right wing, or upside down wing, uh, if you do the accounting, you find out that the government is not borrowing; it's creating money. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you try to limit that, then you're limiting the amount of money that's available for the private sector to do all the things you want the private sector to do, which means private sector organisations are going to go bust, uh, particularly if you start privatising public enterprises as well and having them running under the same situation. And lo and behold, the government's going to go in and pick up the pieces to some extent. Uh, and you're therefore going to have a rising amount of government spending, not because you're uh, you're doing too much. You're trying to remediate the damage you've already done by trying to do too little. Yeah, that's right. So you'll have rising government spending against falling GDP, whereas uh, yeah, yeah. I mean that. I mean that is the approach, isn't it? Do you do you get growth by cutting down on government spending, or do you get growth by uh, I- increasing government spending and therefore seeing G- GDP rise faster? And then perhaps that ratio will reduce because. You're getting the growth that she's looking for. Fundamental issue, isn't it? Her, her approach is, yes, you'll get growth by the government spending less. Yeah, yeah. And what you're doing is the government spends less. It's creating less money. There's less money in the economy. People go and borrow money from the banks instead because, you know, you could, you need you need cash for, you know, just to stay alive in a capitalist economy, you've got to have some money. So you go, rather than having government money creation, which just turns up and doesn't reduce your net worth, actually increases it, you go and borrow from the banks. And then you've got a debt you have to repay, and you can't pay your debts anywhere. You don't have the government's capacity to create money to service any interest payments that are due. So you end up spending less rapidly, and the rate of turnover of money drops and GDP falls. And you can have the perverse effect that by trying to cut the level of government spending, you actually cut the rate of turnover of money and the creation of GDP more, and the ratio rises. Mm. And this is what's going on. They've got it, and they'll never see it because they have. You know, if 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 you, if you try to understand what's happening with meteors and you believe in Ptolemy's system, you ain't never going to get there. And that's the problem they've got. They believe in what I prefer to call these days Ptolemaic economics rather than neoclassical. So, uh, and the numbers support that. So, when the tourists took over in two thousand and ten, they did reduce state spending as a proportion of GDP. It went down from. 46% when they took over, down to below 40% just before the pandemic. So let's ignore the pandemic because that's a whole different set of circumstances. Uh, but of course, that, yeah. that taking it down from 46 to 40 did sod all for economic growth. So we averaged over that 10 years about 0.5% growth per quarter in GDP uh, in the build-up to the pandemic. When Tony Blair was prime minister from 1997 to 2000, quarterly GDP averaged 0.7%, sometimes over 1%. So uh, yeah, help you know helping your argument. More state spending seems to have helped GDP, okay, okay. Not, not reduced it. Okay, look, I'll just let, let for a change. Let me let me give you some numbers. So in that database that I put together to compare you know, you know, rates of growth between 1945 and 1975, which you know 30 years you can call dominated by Keynesian policies. Uh, and then 75 to 2015, so the next 30 years dominated by neoliberal policies. Now, Milton Friedman wasn't dominant in the first period. He was in the second. Growth in America went from 3.2% per annum on average under the Keynesians to 1.9% under Milton Friedman neoliberalism. And that pattern is repeated through every country in the mm. database. So neoliberalism caused a lower rate of growth, and now they're trying to cure it by doing more neoliberalism. Yeah. All right. Well, look, let maybe there's some things that we can find that she is right on. Let me give well, you some. That'll be a challenge. That'll be fun. Okay, I, yeah. I mean, it, it, I mean, the observation might be right. It's what she wants to do about it might be wrong. 
So uh, regulations, the cost of regulations introduced in 2022, she says, uh, is £10 billion, according to the uh, government. And I believe that is an underestimate in the sectors that are key arteries of the economy, whether it's energy, housing and banking. There is less competition and more government involvement than there was 25 years ago. The government still owns a 40% stake in NetWest. The cost of energy in Britain is twice what it is in the United States. And we uh, have a severe shortage of housing. Is it regulations that's creating those problems, do you think? No, it's, it's, it's policies that are designed on the wrong wrong model of how capitalism functions. And this, this is, uh, you know, so if you do, if you have a wrong model and you apply it to the real world, you're going to get perverse results, which you'll then blame on not doing it well enough. And you continue, you know, what was the old saying that uh, beatings will continue until morale improves? Uh, and and that is similar here. Maybe you should stop the beating. And the whole idea of trying to reduce the size of the government directly by spending less, you know, having a lower government deficit actually has the perverse effect of causing GDP to fall faster. And therefore, your debt level rises and you blame the rising debt on too much government spending. It's actually too little because with that government spending uh, being reduced, you have less uh, fiat-based money in the economy, more credit-based money. People are more worried about paying their debt back. They spend more slowly, and GDP falls faster than you cut government spending. So sometimes you've got to do something uh, with what people in complex systems calls obliquely. Uh, you don't try to do it directly. Directly will undermine what you're trying to do. You do the opposite to some extent. And my analogy here is if, if you're an amateur driver, and I classify myself as an amateur driver, if you go into a roundabout and you're going too quickly, you start to skid. What's my response? I turn in the direction I want the car to go to. What happens? The car skids even more. The expert drivers, and it goes completely against your own no emotional Instant. reactions yeah, it's to turn into. into the skin yeah and they put the power up so an expert does the does the oblique approach and doesn't crash and the amateur does the inst- the uh, instinctual approach and crashes right. and what she's being is instinctual here and that's typical of, of Tories well it's interesting because when we're talking about regulation you're thinking well okay is it regulation that is making the cost of energy in Britain twice what it is in the United States well not really because we've privatised all of our energy I mean you could argue it's actually the opposite yeah. you know you're turning the steering wheel exactly the wrong way uh, housing well well, I mean, housing, we, yeah, I mean, almost certainly it is a, a supply side issue, uh, but perhaps we need more regulation to fix that. We oh, know well, we no, need- no, 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 it's actually, it's actually a demand side issue because the Tories oh, deregulated up. lending, for, lending yeah. for housing. So you went from private debt being roughly 70% of GDP before it was deregulated to 200% after, most of that rise being an increase in mortgage debt, which drove up house prices, also made it more unaffordable. So again, this is focusing upon the wrong issues. If you read from the neoclassical stroke, neoliberal stroke Tory uh, handbook, you don't even worry about borrowing, when you're people borrowing money to buy housing. That's what's causing the bubbles. So again, it's it's getting the causal factors wrong. And the government getting out of NatWest? Well, they only got into the private banking sector because they got out of the banking sector and let it do what it damn well wanted to do. And you then got the Ponzi scheme of the subprime and so on and a crash. So yeah, if you, if you, if you get out of the way, but this, the other also prevention is better than cure. There's a little, this is one of the few little, you know, homilies that anybody left or right will, will, will happily spout. 
if you if you prevent things, it's a downside cheaper than having to cure them afterwards. What happened is they let it rip, and now they're in cure mode. And of course, the level of government spending has gone up as well, a she result. Wants to, she wants to go after pensions as well. So the cost of welfare and pensions has ballooned by fifty percent oh. in real time since in real time since the turn of the millennium. She says what she doesn't mention is most of that is pensions, not welfare. Uh, so pensions of uh, two hundred and four billion in the fiscal year twenty twenty four, sixty six billion in the year two thousand. So in real terms, that's almost doubled. But the population is aging. So in the two thousand and one census, there were eight point three million people aged over sixty five. In two thousand eleven gone up to 9.2 uh, and then in 2021 it shot up to 11 million so it's up by a third in those 20 years we're close to one in five people now being aged over 65 so actually taking a fifth of the population and saying well actually we're going to cut the amount of money that you've got uh, because we think that's going to increase the amount of money being spent in the economy not quite sure how that works <laughs> yeah and like you, 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 you the pensioners and students the two two groups that you can actually regard as being sources of monetary demand for the economy, as long as the money is there, the longer they get the money in the first place. So you've got a demand deficiency. Yeah, they, they pensioners are yeah. not putting money aside for their pension. They, what they've got is they're spending. Well, they have to. I mean, the thing is they're not earning. I mean, it's the whole idea that you can save enough for your retirement is fine if you're rich. Again, all this stuff uh, is, comes down on the, on the side of damaging the poor and the, um, and the people without assets. And you know, if you don't spend on medical services, then Rupert Murdoch is still going to be able to find a surgeon somewhere, maybe an entire hospital. Uh, but the poor, you don't have the operation. You 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 carry that forward, and you're disabled for the future, and you've got the extra medical cost coming out of that. So this 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 penny pinching approach to saving uh, ends up reducing the number of pennies in circulation and making it look like it's getting more expensive every year. It's just a recipe for disaster. But that seems to be what the UK um, is focused on. Enjoys, yeah. Absolutely. Hey, just as an aside, this is interesting. Uh, the European Social yeah. Survey asked people in various countries what they considered uh, old age. When does it kick in? Uh, in the UK, they said it kicks in at 59. In Greece, 68. So I'm I'm a spring chicken in uh, in Greece. When does youth end? We say it ends at 35. They say it ends at 52. There's this big attitude towards uh, age across uh, across uh-huh. Europe. I just you know an interesting aside. Uh, another thing she says: yeah. our tax system has become more complicated. And actually, I sort of agree with her on this one. So someone earning a hundred thousand pounds which is a bit of money. It's well above average, but there's an increasing number of people yeah. uh, hitting this bracket. Someone earning £100,000 with a student loan faces a marginal tax rate of 71%. What she didn't mention, which makes it even worse, is you've got 20% VAT on top of that as well. So if you earn 100000 the next 10000 uh, you get to keep 3000 3, of that. And then if you buy stuff, you know, you spend all of that, then that's another 600 that's going in consumption tax, basically. So you earn 10000 That's including a student loan, though. Including the student loan. Yeah, okay. We'll take it down from 71% to 60%. Uh, it's still, you know, you're still paying a, a great deal more. But, yeah, I mean, the, the whole student loan thing's a bit of a crazy thing anyway, isn't it? But it's the point is you get to that 100000 and really there's no incentive to um, to spend. Or you could say to earn, I think people would carry on earning, wouldn't they? They'd just put more into pensions to try and keep uh, – because that's tax deductible. Uh, but the idea that if you earn 10000 you have less than two two 2500 after tax is just a nonsense, isn't it? So I agree with her on this one. Yeah, I mean, to me, I mean, the perspective from modern monetary theory, which on this point I completely agree with them, is the taxation is taking excess government money out of circulation. 
But doing a three income tax is possibly one of the most aggravating and annoying ways to do it. And this this is the problem. It, 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 you know, when you are individually having money taken out of your account, uh, that itself is an irritation. And then, of course, if you're somebody, you know, let's call it, let's say your name is Lord Sugar, for example, uh, you take yourself out of the country to avoid paying tax. Uh, so there's all sorts of ways the rich can evade paying that income tax, whereas the poor can't. And what ends up being you're alienating certainly the middle class of your potential um, uh, political supporters by taking money out of them all that's you know, through the through the income tax system. You know, I'm largely in favour of things like transaction taxes, or the best thing of all, the Gazellian currency, which which depreciates on its own, uh, to reduce that excess potential excess government money creation. But yeah, it, it's a it's a politically very it, it encourages a right wing attitude towards everything. Yeah, but tax is complicated, and it is a minefield, and there are lots of loopholes. Yeah. So you mentioned Lord Sugar. I mean, he would have got away with it. It wasn't for that. Oh, pesky. somebody called Lord Sugar. Oh, right. Okay, sorry. sorry. <laughs> Didn't you? So he would have got away with it. It wasn't for that pesky House of Lords. But I mean, he was he was there uh, trying to uh, basically running a, running a, a company, a limited company. He'd accrued a great deal of money, so he'd paid corporate tax on it over over the years. It just sits in your bank account, uh, and you can't take it out because you've got to um, pay dividend tax, which if you take out a slugger money can get quite high, so like thirty percent or whatever. So he just uh, spends a year out of the country, claims himself uh, non-resident, and takes as much money out of his company as he wants without paying any tax. So there's ways of avoiding all of this, but you can only do that if you earn so much within a private company to have uh, made it worthwhile. So the fact that you can cheat the system like that is uh, it just shows what a nonsense the, the, the tax system is. So complicated, she said. Uh, it and, and and it does hit you know people at a certain level rather sharply, but there's ways of evading it as well. There's got to be a simpler tax system. So on that, I might actually agree with Liz Truss. Yeah, and I do too in the sense that the income tax is the most you know irritating and, and inefficient and burdensome way of taking money out of circulation. We've got to find a better way. There we are. One of them. There we are. So but people I don't can't... think she's likely to come up with it. Well, okay, just one though. We just wanted one thing that we agreed with her on. Whether you know how she's going to implement it. Another thing, maybe she'll you'll agree with her on this as well. Here she is talking about banks. And we've had cheap money for over a decade with nearly £900 billion pumped into the system by the Bank of England through quantitative easing in an era of near-zero near interest rates, something that's completely unprecedented in 300 years of UK central banking. So how on earth did we get to this situation? Uh, so she thinks they've done too much. QE, creating money, money being pumped into the system by the Bank of England, not a big supporter of all of that. Well, on that one, we can agree again because QE was basically inflating the, the uh, uh, private assets in the aftermath of the global financial crisis. And what they should have done is reduce private debt. So uh, I completely agree on that one. And, and QE has been an ineffective means of trying to stimulate the economy. And again, that's following a failed set of concepts about the economy or how the economy operates. And you can't blame neoliberalism directly for that, it's really the naivety that mainstream economists have about money creation, where they actually believe, and you can find quotes from Ben Bernanke on this front, that if they ran up the reserves that banks had, and that's what happens when you buy bonds off, the uh, central bank buys bonds off the banks, uh, even off the non-banks, it increases the amount of reserves that the banks have compared to the bonds. And they believe that lend those out. And that is mathematically impossible, unless all loans are in cash. 
Um, so again, it's a failed, uh, uh, a false concept of the monetary system that causes the problem that she's complaining about. So for one, she's got she's got the right monkey by the tail this time. Yeah, but I think for the wrong reasoning, I suspect. I think she's just thinking, well, it's it's creating too much money in the economy, and that's flooding the economy, and that's creating inflation. Well, she, I'm sure she, that- th- 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 she thinks she thinks it's worked the way they thought it would, and it's been bad. And it hasn't worked the way they thought it, and it's been bad. <laughs> right, look, we're a bit late taking a break, so we'll do that now. Uh, so, you know, what does she want to do about all of this? Uh, what's her plan? We'll look at that when we come back in just a second on the Debunking Economics podcast. Me and Steve Keen, back in a moment. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. This is the Debunking Economics Podcast with Steve Keen and Phil Dobby. So, Steve, we are looking at Liz Truss. She gave a speech about how she wants to be. Please, 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 can I be prime minister again? Because uh, I was right when I tried to uh, grow the economy last time. It's just, you know, that people have have forgotten, you know, the uh, the words of Milton Friedman. And, uh, you know, if we all read his book, we'd understand. That seems to be what she's saying. She actually did say that. Didn't she? she actually said, uh, you know, we, we can't imagine everybody's read Milton Friedman. The pity is too many people have, yeah. including her. That's right, and believes every word of it. So she says, after the successful monetary policy and the supply-side reforms of the 1980s and the winning of the Cold War by the West, we were all optimistic and upbeat about our future, and we took our eye off the ball. Free market economists went off for lucrative jobs in the city, allowing academic institutions, boo, that's people like you, Steve, and think tanks to be captured (laughs) by the left. Demand management crept. Uh, that that is just priceless. <laughs> so, it's, oh Jesus Christ! Demand management crept Left. back in alongside neo-Keynesian-dominated monetary uh, policy, and we conservatives allowed the debate to be framed and led by the left. Whether it was the anti-capitalist arguments of the Occupy movement, whether it was the diversity with curry policies, I'm not quite sure what she means by curry policies. Except there was when she was prime minister. Um, there was a, it's not, you know, sort of like government by Bindi Baji. It was, there was the rebel MPs got together over a curry to try and figure out how they were going to oust Liz Truss. It was called the Poppadon plot. So maybe she's talking about the policies that those people are coming out to. Whether it's that, the anti-capitalist arguments of the Occupy movement, or whether it was the statist environmental solutions, uh, that is the problem. Uh, and that's what she's fighting against. Yeah, it's... I mean, the whole idea that left-wing economists took over, uh, it's intriguing thing, I am a left-wing economist and I am protesting about the mainstream, which is right-wing. I know a lot of economists would object to being called right-wing because they're socially progressive. That's the problem. They combine socially progressive and social ideas to some extent with uh, textbook false model of how the economy operates. So they think, you know, the, the classic is they think banks lend out reserves. Um, 
and the Bank of England itself finally comes, well, that's actually wrong. The politicians still believe it, and the policymakers in the banks still believe it. So it, it, it is just... To me, laughable that that is believed, that the left wing has won. In fact, I saw Nathan Tankus put a, a, a tweet out in response to, I, who's that right-wing American commentator that's now on Twitter? Oh, the, the Rupert Sack, Tucker Carlson you're talking about, he, I think. He came out and said the left has won, and the left is organised. The left doesn't dispute with itself. Uh, you know, The left just goes, makes up a position and makes sure nobody deviates from it. Holy yeah. hell! Is that, that If you've actually been to any left-wing <laughs> meeting... <laughs> It's an absolute joke. The left is stabbing itself in the back all the bloody time. Can never agree on anything. Um, and 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 I've you know, I've I've been in those meetings. I've seen the sorts of farces that occur. And they're, they're, the picture from somebody like Truss or or, or, or Tucker, it, it, it's yeah. the bubble they're in that sees the world through the lens of the the social bubble, and they actually believe that you know, the, the left is dominant. Give me a break. So I mean, uh, the fundamental difference is though that what she says is driving the the agenda in the left is the belief that. Gr- growth is going to go on forever so the focus is on how you share out the pie not how to grow the pie and she reckons the pie is not growing because of the greater involvement here we go again by the state that's hitting productivity uh, but there's, there's not enough incentive to go out to work uh, or to take risks and she says the Treasury's forecasts and the uh, Office of Budget Responsibilities uh, forecasts which are predicting low growth she says underestimate the effect that tax and regulation has on people's behavior this is what she calls abacus economics so it's the whole thing about well you know if we just provide more incentive the pie will grow but we've got far too focused on how we can uh, create a more equitable society that's it that's their big bugbear in england in okay. England, I know. <laughs> we have just know. seen growing uh, disparity in income uh, to, to extraordinary Huge. levels. Where people people yeah, are at food so banks. I know. It's a shock. I mean, uh, yeah, and this, this is the whole you know, problem about uh, people living inside their own political and social bubbles. And what you're getting is, and we saw this with the Morrison government in, in Australia um, with the same. Uh, and, and the Liberal Party in general, which, of course, for those who don't know, is a conservative party in Australia. Um, uh, and, and they, by preaching to their own crowd, they reinforced their perspective on why things have gone wrong, which when you stand back and take a look at the whole system, uh, can just be you know, completely back the front, completely ask about tit to use an Australian expression. So um, it, it is amusing to some extent to imagine that this is common conversation amongst wealthy right-wing uh, politicians and uh, and commentators that they think the left is organised. I'll give you an example. Can I give a, can we give a little personal example here of uh, organisation of the left? sort of nonsense that occurs. I, um, When I was conservative in my economic groups up to the age of about 18 and then saw through the logical problems in it, I politically shifted and I ended up being interested in anarchist philosophy. And like one of my best friends was the anarchist David Graeber, who uh, a very, very different person to people I'm about to ridicule here. But there were anarchist conferences organized, which itself is a funny concept. The thing is, people would say they couldn't even they couldn't even decide to have a chairman. And that's true. So this meeting, a three-day conference on anarchist, anarchist philosophy in Sydney, uh, spent the entire three days arguing over the, whether there should or should not be a chairperson for discussions. <laughs> and I, I ceased being an anarchist uh, in the middle of it, saying it just attracts loonies. Yeah. And, and, but that's well, I mean, Surely they wouldn't, though, for anarchists, there can't be anyone in control. Surely you can't. Uh, well, uh, I suppose, my, my, my possession was we, 
And my perception, what I'm going to do it to you now here, is that a strong speaker like me would, if without a chairman, will dominate. So you need a chairman to people like me to S- STF you. That's why I'm here. And, and control the discussion and give other people the chance. Uh, and, and that was perfectly logical. But no, one bloke actually, and I still, I, I can see it vividly. It's so funny. He stands up and, and says in this quaky little voice, whenever two people get together to make a decision, that's authoritarian. And, oh, my God, let me out of here. And they think the left is organised. Well, they are, and they are the problem. So, uh, and she's going to fix. She's oh, going to yeah. fix it's all it. The left, yeah, the organised. Uh, left. Yeah, exactly. That's uh, yeah. They're, they're everywhere. They're in the media. Bloody Rupert Murdoch with his uh, socialist ideas. Ah, oh, you're the lefty, obviously. Yeah, yeah, all those, all those, le- all those lefties lefty, in the yeah. city as well mm-hmm. as uh, you know those traders there, just uh, moving money around with the ulterior motive of trying to create a more equitable outcome for society. Uh, they they, they, they are yeah. everywhere, aren't they? They're in for equality. So, yeah, uh, yeah that's right. Property no. developers, uh, they're obviously keen to make sure that uh, housing is uh, offered in the lowest possible price so that uh, it's affordable to everybody. Mm-hmm. All through yep. society, we're mm-hmm. seeing that. So to get the British economy on a better trajectory, she's got a three-pronged approach, she says. Targeted tax freezes and reductions, supply-side reform, and holding down public spending. So cutting the higher rate of tax would increase revenue, she reckons, because it would make Britain more attractive to investors. Well, I laugh at that, and- a laugher, or... I'm sorry, that's the economic Yeah, the, the whole Laffer curve. The that Laffer is curve it, completely bad. it, okay. isn't it? Okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, she is completely Laffer. I mean, to the point that, you know, she points to Donald Trump, who had the same argument, uh, that if you to if you basically introduce tax cuts, uh, then ultimately uh, you're going to have more money for public services because you're going to get much more tax revenue in because there'll be more people working, there'll be more investment from overseas. Uh, all of this miraculously is going to is going to work. It didn't work for Donald Trump, did it? And in fact, the Brookings it didn't work Institute, for Reagan either. I mean, that is in one in some sort of sense a semi-oblique, you know, obliquity type of approach. You know, cuts cut tax to increase tax type thinking. Uh, but practically when Reagan did it, you had the biggest government deficits for quite some substantial time and you got a booming economy out of it. The deficit actually caused more money in circulation and the economy boomed. But it was the opposite of what uh, Reagan thought would cause it. Well, the Brookings Institute, which is hardly a left-wing think tank, uh, their take on Donald Trump was that it created a budget shortfall. Um, it made um, it, it did distribution of income more unequal. Uh, and uh, had a marginal impact on GDP, if anything at all. So yeah, just made things worse. Was that was their conclusion? So there's uh, you know, and they're not left wing. So another thing she wants to do: get rid of the windfall tax on energy companies. Uh, but she, like Rishi, obviously wants to open up the North Sea as well for more oil exploration. I mean, that is happening because uh, you can make a lot of money from fossil fuels. Did you know that? Mm. Uh, and the windfall tax deterred investment in the North Sea, basically. So. Yeah, uh, invest in fossil fuels, energy dependence, forget the environment. I mean, that's, uh, that is clearly part of her, uh, her philosophy. And obviously, Rishi Sunak sees that as a, as a vote winner too. I mean, they've just pushed back the, um, the deadline for buying uh, petrol cars. You can buy them in 2035 now in the UK. It's been pushed back five years. And then it'll be pushed back another five or ten after that, obviously. Yeah, I mean, this is what's, I mean, you know, trying to be slightly less facetious for a change. Uh, this is what is a, a terrifying to me prospect for the future we face, because having politicised all the stuff, which is based on you know scientific analysis, the the, you know, the, the greenhouse effect, I think was 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 first established in 1850, um, uh, and and our knowledge about this is, is based on solid science. 
And the trouble is people who are making these decisions see everything through the lens of politics and economics, which is anything but solid science. And they believe all the stuff is left wing when it's based on a sound idea of what's going to happen to the biosphere if we don't stop uh, pumping not just carbon dioxide, but all the other waste and pollutants we dump in the system. And at some point, so far as I know, the, the, the planet itself is neither left nor right. Okay, uh, it's just correct. It's it's what's going to come back to us. It's left wing. It's it's left wing. Which way does it spin? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I don't know, but it's but it's but it's. I mean, look, it's there. It's, it's trying to you know, it's right, providing it's providing for everybody. Yeah. It's no. It's it's uh, yeah. No, it goes it's, right it's to left. But but no. but yeah. It, oh, it depends. Well, if you're standing up, let's say you're standing in the bottom and looking at it from that direction. Um, yeah, we, we're going to pay the price for politicising everything. And getting the politics based on a on a fallacious analysis of how the economy operates and how the most importantly how it interacts with the with the biosphere, and this is going to be a devastating price, and it's coming our way. And I'm I'm, I'm you know the more I see the sort of nonsense we do in things like this, a person with her views, once having been prime minister and getting the sort of forums she gets, uh, we are not at all prepared for what's coming our way, left, right, yeah. or whatever. And that, well, is, look, that is the scary thing about all this. Yeah, but what you're talking about is on behalf of the Anti-Growth Coalition, Steve, which is a powerful ah, force. Ah, there we go, yeah. You the are part well, of the, the economic and political elite, the corporatist parts of the media. Obviously, that's this podcast and uh, even a section of the Conservative Parliamentary Party is that, that they are the members of the Anti-Growth Coalition and the policies she advocates are not fashionable on the London dinner party circuit, but she says, according to the Ashcroft poll, um, that those who want smaller government and lower taxes, taxes tend to live in less affluent areas. So it's the it's the rich elite that are forcing the socialist policies on, on everybody, whereas those people who actually need a leg up are the ones saying, no, we don't, we want less government, less regulation, and um, yeah, we, we go Liz. It's hard to believe, isn't it? Look, some yeah, quick one-liners to finish off with. Yeah. Some, uh, okay, you know, sure. yeah. mm. some, some, some of the other good ones. I mean, yeah, net zero, uh, that, that's all gone. Uh, the government needs to divest its shares in banks and withdraw from micromanagement in sectors like transport. Y- yeah, because the transport sector, uh, which has been privatised, that's worked so well in the UK, hasn't it? Uh, another one, uh, more competition and less corporatization in key sectors of the economy like energy and finance. More competition in energy, which has been obviously uh, open to competition, doesn't seem to have worked very well. For example, uh, we got rid of all our gas storage as part of that because it costs too much. Uh, more competition mm. in finance. Is that going to work? And uh, raising the retirement age further to deal with the rising pension cost. Mm. Uh, so- <laughs> So ideally, till to a point at which uh, beyond which everyone's still alive, uh, you can you know, yeah, we'll take the average age and we'll push the retirement age a couple of years above that. Um, uh, so that's, that's all going to save money and re- decrease um, the regulation. And we'll live happily ever after, in, and more fantasies in trust land, more fairy tales. But it is it is yeah. interesting how yeah. uh, if you look at that Ashcroft poll how the Tory party voting is shifting. So she is, her talking, her her approach is very much obviously the the heartland of the Tory party of old. So there was a statement that people were asked about, should people provide for themselves and not expect the government to provide for them? So I think that's quite a defining 
statement, actually, as to where your politics lie. Yeah, it is, definitely. 45% yeah. of those who voted Tory in the last election and 49% of those who intend to vote Tory agree with that, compared to 8% of those who voted for Labour. So 49% versus 8%. That shows how that is the fundamental difference between parties, uh, between Tories and Labour. And she's playing to that. I mean, Boris was a bit too much Labour in his approach because he didn't. I don't think he did agree with that. Uh, and uh, in the Ashcroft, Ashcroft poll, what party do you think is more likely to keep taxes as low as possible for workers and families... You'd assume the Tories, wouldn't you? But this is the problem we've got. 34% said Labour, only 14% said Conservatives. That's the mm. problem the Tory party has got. There's a whole load of people saying, yes, we think that people should be able to look after themselves. But then on the other side, there's a whole load of people who are saying, but also we uh, we, we think taxes should be kept low to, to enable that. And people think Labour's going to do a better job at that than the, than the Tory party are. So that that's their problem. Even you know, even if you take this agenda that they've got, they're not delivering it very well. And that's the thing: you can't deliver an agenda when you don't understand the system you're trying to agenda, deliver the agenda with. And that's 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 why this mm. is such a mess. The one thing we I can completely agree with: Britain is broken, and ideologies like hers are a large part of the reason why. Yeah, well, good point to leave it on. Um, the problem is, of course, for Britain and and for a lot of the rest of the world. There's nobody with an alternate agenda who is in any position of power or likely to attain any position of power. We need, uh, just as she's saying, we need people to have read Milton Friedman. We need a, a few more people to read your books, perhaps. And um, The Limits to Growth. And The and Limits the limit to Growth. That, that, that's the important book. Uh, they be ignored, derided, and then they're going to be proven correct. And then, then we're going to say, oh, we should have taken them seriously. Yeah. But that didn't. was 1974, was it? Something like that? 70, 72, 72, 73. Right. 50 years ago. Mm. Okay. Shocking. So, you know, that's over which period of time we've probably increased our load on the planet by a factor of four, mm. certainly a factor of three. And, uh, uh, and, and this, this, you know, if, if any problem is, is at the root of why we make mistakes like we're making now, uh, and I've forgotten the mathematician who made the point. It's the point where you simply don't understand the exponential function. When you've got compounding growth upon growth upon growth, uh, it's ridiculous how rapidly you increase your load on on the system, and it simply can't be maintained. Exponential growth will stop, and that's we're getting very close to the point where that's going to be proven. Whether you're left or right, it's a lesson we're all going to learn. Right. That aside, and I'm not d d denying that that is the significant issue, I've, I've almost given up, actually, to be honest with you. The more I see that we, we seem to be veering away from uh, any uh, progress in that in that direction, I've almost given up and said, well, yeah. okay, the planet's, the planet's going to go wreck and ruin, which was your approach a while ago, and I was uh, I was giving you a hard time over it. But I can see your point now, as time marches on. We seem to be getting uh, further and further away from solving the problem. But that aside, let's push that to one side. Just she's saying, you know, we can't assume people have read Milton Friedman. Uh, so we need to spell out the philosophy that sits behind Milton Friedman's work. If there was one book that you'd say, well, OK, if you're going to read Milton Friedman and you want the alternative viewpoint, who would who would you what would you say is the easy to read? Not that Milton Friedman says it necessarily easy to read. What would you say is the book that, we, you know, everyone should read to try and get a handle on this? Well, actually, probably go for Harjo and Chance, 23 things they don't teach you about capitalism. But my stuff tends, to be, brilliant tends to be too analytic. Uh, like, you're going to read my yeah. stuff, you've got to, you, 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 you're going to get your head bent by trying to follow logical um, arguments and maybe a bit of mathematics here. Harjo and Chance is more accessible, so I'd say that's the one people should yeah, read. Yeah, and it's a good, easy read, and it's, and it's fun as well. So, yeah, absolutely. 
Uh, yeah. Okay. Very good. All right. Let's leave it there for now. Let's. I think we've seen the end of Liz Truss. Uh, not through our work. I think she's uh, done a good demolition job on herself. Anyway. Uh, but that is interesting, isn't it? Because there she is, sort of like uh, giving that hard line neoclassic approach, and people aren't liking it, even within the Tory party. So yeah. maybe maybe the tide is turning. Hopefully. All right. Catch you next okay. week, Steve. Okay, mate. Bye. Now, next week, we're hoping to get Nick Hanauer on the podcast. He's the man behind uh, Pitchfork Economics. He's got a brilliant podcast by that name as well. He's got a new book out called Corporate Bullshit, Exposing the Lies and Half-Truths that Protect Profit, Power and Wealth in America. That sounds like fun, doesn't it? Uh, we'll talk about that hopefully next week if we can get him lined up uh, next week on the Debunking Economics podcast. That's it for me and Steve for now. Thanks for listening. The Debunking Economics podcast. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy the Y-Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search the Y-Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.